Bid him enter while you may. Amen. If you would, please turn your Bibles to John chapter 10 once again, please, as we pick up our expositional study. John chapter 10, verse 1. And let's hear again the opening, illustra- opening illustration that was given by Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. The religious leaders and other listeners hearing Jesus, they understood the agricultural meaning of his words. The work of shepherds and the behavior of sheep was well known in the first century. It was part of daily life. But what his listeners did not understand were the spiritual implications of his words. Therefore, Jesus now goes on to explain the meaning of this illustration and how this imagery corresponds to a deeper spiritual reality. In the remainder of this chapter, Jesus will take the images he used in the illustration and apply them to himself and to his opponents. Jesus will make two important statements using a powerful format that he has already used several times in this gospel. In this chapter, Jesus will not make one, but two I am statements. In the verses ahead, Jesus will declare, I am the door, and then he will declare, I am the good shepherd. As Jesus applies these images to himself, the door and the shepherd, they both point to the reason why Christ has come, and it is salvation. That is the salvation of our souls. As the door, Jesus is the one and only way to find salvation. It is only through Jesus that we may enter into the eternal kingdom. And as the shepherd, it is Christ alone who leads the sheep, cares for them, and provides for their salvation at the cost of his own life. Let's go, please to John chapter 10, verse 7, as Jesus now begins to explain his opening illustration. Verse 7. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. As Jesus again identifies himself with an I am statement, 
we see yet another reference to his divinity. I am the door of the sheep. The reason these words, I am, indicate divinity is because these are the same words that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, he heard God's voice coming from the burning bush, a miraculous manifestation of God's presence. God told Moses that he would serve as God's instrument to deliver his people Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? God said to Moses, you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. This name tells us that our God has no beginning and no end. He is the great I am. He is ever-present, ever-living. He is the God of creation. In John's gospel, we have seen at least two occasions when Jesus speaks of himself using this term, I am, on its own. For example, in John chapter 8, Jesus declared, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is God, and therefore Jesus has no beginning and no end. But as we have also seen, Jesus uses the words, I am, with an additional phrase. Why? To further explain who he is and why he has come. For example, in chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Here in chapter 10, we find two more I am statements. Our focus today is on the first of these two statements as Jesus declares, I am the door of the sheep. As Jesus declares that he is the door, let's take a moment to recall some important details that Jesus gave us in the opening illustration. In verses one and two, Jesus said, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The sheepfold, or as some have it, the sheep pen, is where the sheep were kept during the night to protect them from predators, such as wolves and even lions. This enclosure was typically made of stone, and the wall was at least chest high, sometimes higher, and on top of the wall, it was covered with branches covered with thorns, the equivalent of our modern barbed wire. And this stone wall was purposely constructed with just one opening. And through this opening, the shepherd would take his sheep into the pen or he would take his sheep out of the pen. The illustration focused on access to the sheepfold. 
And Jesus drew a contrast between two kinds of access to the sheep. The first mentioned is an unauthorized attempt to gain access by thieving false shepherds who want to steal the sheep. The other access comes from the true and rightful shepherd, and only he is authorized to gain access to the sheep. As Jesus said in verse 2, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. As Jesus now explains the opening, opening illustration, he reveals that he is both the door and the shepherd. As we focus today on the first saying, I am the door, we need to consider the functions of a door. That is an actual physical door like these. We need to consider the functions of a door. And a door has two functions. The difference of a door's function depends on whether the door is closed or whether it is open. Let's consider the first function when the door is closed. In the sheep fold, the sheep pen, the opening in the wall may have a door in it. And that what I'm talking about now is a, a wooden slab that turns on hinges. But it didn't always have a wooden door. Sometimes the shepherd would position himself in the opening. In a sense, the shepherd would stand in the gap. And if any intruder tried to gain access to the sheep, the shepherd would block that access. He is the door. The other function is when the door is in the open position. When a door is in the open position, it is more accurate to think of that door as serving as a doorway. I suggest that when Jesus says, I am the door, there is both an aspect where he blocks the entrance, but there's also an aspect where he serves as the doorway. Consider the importance of a doorway. It serves as the transition point through which there is movement from one place to another. The idea of the door serving as the portal through which the sheep will move will be very important in a moment when Jesus speaks of using this door, meaning Jesus himself, to go from one place to another, from the sheepfold to the pasture. But before Jesus speaks of how he will serve as the transition point for his sheep to move from one place to another, he first draws a contrast between himself and those who threaten the sheep. Let's look, please, at verse 8. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Jesus compares himself to others who came before him. And we will surmise that the reason these predecessors are referred to as thieves and robbers is because of their attempt to steal people away from the true shepherd who had not yet arrived. 
meaning Jesus. The commentator, Leon Morris, describes this statement from Jesus as strangely comprehensive and sweeping. Jesus says, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the first thing we should take notice of is that in the New King James, the word ever, if you're looking at your Bibles, the word ever is in italics. The NIV also has the word ever, but it is not in italics. The reason the New King James italicizes the word ever is because there is no corresponding word in the Greek text, meaning it was added by the editors in order to help us, the reader. But I think it will be seen that this word, this addition of the word ever, is an unnecessary addition. And if that is the case, what Jesus is saying, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, even with that adjustment, it still appears broad and sweeping. But I think it is safe for us to make a preliminary assessment and conclude that when Jesus speaks of all, all who came before him, he cannot be including such leaders as Moses and David or prophets such as Isaiah or Jeremiah. It could not include them because they were specifically called directly by God. They were authorized by God, by God to shepherd the people, to guide God's people. Therefore, we certainly cannot think of them as thieves and robbers. Therefore, I agree with those scholars who suggest that while Jesus is looking back, he has something more recent in mind. Namely, the religious leaders of Israel who are currently in power, and perhaps more to the point, messianic pretenders. As evidence of that, we need to have a closer look at this verse as it appears in the New King James. Jesus says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Notice that word are thieves and robbers. That is the translation that is used by most English versions, but there are some English translations, such as the NIV, that use the word were thieves and robbers. Unfortunately, that, that translation is incorrect. The Greek text is very clear. The present tense is being used. So, what Jesus says, all who came before me are, present tense, are thieves and robbers. And so he is speaking about those who have preceded him, but he appears to be focused on what is occurring in the present situation. A chief contributor of the current spiritual thievery that was taking place in Jesus' day were the Pharisees. Jesus has repeatedly warned the people of the danger of following their false teaching. And what did he call them? Blind guides. 
They claimed, these blind guides, to know the way to salvation. They taught the people that you can earn your way into heaven by your good works and by following the law. But Jesus said that this is misguided, that we need to enter, the, we need to enter salvation through faith. It is by grace, through faith, that you are saved, not by works. And so in reality, these blind guides were leading their people into the pit. Also, it is very likely that when Jesus speaks of these thieves and robbers who have preceded him, in addition to the false teachers, he also has in mind false messiahs. In the decades leading up to the arrival of Jesus, there were several prominent men who claimed that they had come to deliver Israel. These men said they would remove the heavy yoke of Roman oppression from the Jewish people. The goal of these leaders was to raise up an army of Jewish men to drive the Roman occupiers out of their land. I'd like to give one example. A man known as Judas the Galilean. Judas the Galilean. At the time when Jesus was born, the Gospel of Luke tells us that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. We recognize that from the birth narrative, right? A census was taken. Now, because this census was taken for the purpose of collecting taxes, confiscatory taxes, and that this money would be used to further subjugate the Jewish people, Judas of Galilee organized a resistance movement against the Romans. He and his followers, who would become known as the Zealots, became increasingly militant, attacking both Roman soldiers and their Jewish collaborators. Some came to see Judas as the Messiah, thinking he might be the military leader they wanted who would crush the Romans. But what might be most significant about Judas of Galilee is that he is mentioned in the book of Acts. This mention occurs when the Sanhedrin summon Peter and the other apostles to appear before the ruling council. This was after Jesus returned to the Father's right hand and the apostles went out to preach the gospel. But they were commanded by the Sanhedrin, you are not to speak in this name. And you remember what boldly, how Peter boldly responded? We must obey God rather than men. But then Peter took the extra step of reminding the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of all Israel, you killed the Messiah, Peter said, by hanging him on a cross. Well, this infuriated the members of the council, and they were ready to kill Peter and the apostles right there on the spot. That is when a man named Gamaliel 
stood up. And here's what he said to the ruling council, to the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, take heed what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered, and it came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And so the point that Gamaliel was making is that these earlier messianic movements had taken place in just the last couple of decades. They had all come to nothing. And so he told the Sanhedrin to ignore Peter and these other men because he believed, Gamaliel, that nothing would come of this most recent messianic movement referring to Jesus. As we know, Gamaliel could not have been more wrong. So let's return to verse 8. As Jesus says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. All the messianic pretenders, all the religious leaders who tried to steal souls away from Jesus, they came as thieves and as robbers. But as Jesus says, the sheep did not hear them. Well, this will seem odd because these messianic pretenders, such as Judas, did attract followers. And many who took arms, took up arms to follow these so-called messiahs were killed. Now think about that. These followers died following a false messiah. What do you think became of their souls? And we can't overlook the scribes and the Pharisees who also misled many. They too, the followers of these false teachers, fell into an everlasting pit. So why then does Jesus say, but the sheep did not hear them, these false shepherds? Well, here's why. Because Jesus is referring to his sheep. Amen? He's referring to his sheep. Let's be reminded what Jesus said in verse 4 in his illustration. Jesus said, And when he, the true shepherd, brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. You see, those who belong to Christ, they know Christ's voice. They will not follow a stranger. And so those whom Christ has called will not follow an imposter, only the true shepherd. In verse 9, Jesus repeats his divine declaration. He says, I am the door. As he repeats this I am statement, it gives us another opportunity to discover more about who Jesus is and why he has come. As Jesus says, I am the door, this saying underscores the uniqueness of Jesus. When he says, I am the door, this means he's the only door. 
He does not say, I am a door. He's not one among many. He is the door. There is only one door and there is no other. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. And that name is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the door. There is no other door that is offered by messianic pretenders or by blind guides. Jesus says, I am the door. But that immediately begs the question, the door to what? Well, if we continue on verse 9, Jesus answers that question. Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, remember, he's the doorway. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. His statement about being saved, that's crucial. Jesus is the door because he is the only passageway to enter into salvation. He is the door and it is through him that we must enter if we want to enter into the kingdom of God. As Jesus declares, I am the door, we will bear that in mind later in chapter 18 when Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. He is the doorway. He is the passageway to the kingdom of God and to eternal life. In this verse before us today, Jesus says, If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus, once again, using the imagery that was introduced in the opening illustration, and he's describing the sheep moving in and out of that walled enclosure, the sheep pen, to keep the sheep safe at night. Now, although Jesus is speaking about going in and out, the primary thought is on the going out. The reason I'm saying that is because the primary thought about the sheep going out is evidenced by the fact that Jesus specifically speaks about going out to the pasture. So that's the focus, going out to the pasture. As Jesus speaks about finding pasture, notice, we'll go in and out, and for the going out, the sheep will what? Find pasture. Well, as Jesus speaks about finding pasture, let's make two observations. The first concerns the action of finding pasture. As Jesus speaks about the sheep finding pasture, it is not the case that the sheep have got to go out and find the pasture on their own. That's not the job of the sheep. That's the job of the shepherd. The shepherd leads the sheep to the pasture. It is the shepherd who provides for the needs of his flock. We are reminded of the opening words from the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. 
Because Christ is our shepherd, he will supply our needs. And the Apostle Paul affirms this truth in his letter to the Philippians. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. But these promises of God's provision has led some false shepherds, some false teachers to offer an improper and exaggerated expectation among some people. I'm referring to those teachers who offer what might be called the prosperity gospel. They say that the life of the believer will now be one of prosperity and guaranteed comfort. These prosperity preachers say, oh, if you only have enough faith, you just name it and it will be given to you, no matter if it's a new car, a new house, or even a plane like me, the prosperity preacher. But what these false shepherds fail to mention is that Jesus warned believers, in this world you will have trouble. God does supply our physical needs, but we've got to accept the fact that the things of this world are not guaranteed. Genuine Christians do die of starvation. Genuine Christians do die in war-torn regions of the world. Genuine Christians do die martyred for their faith. But while the things of this world are not guaranteed, what is guaranteed is our place in God's eternal kingdom. God will supply all of our needs, everything that is necessary, so that when we go out of this world, out of this sheep pen, we will arrive successfully in that eternal pasture called the kingdom of God. Despite the threat of thieving false teachers, we will not be taken away from the good shepherd. Even if the devil should come around prowling like a lion, looking for those he can devour, we know that those who belong to Christ will not be prevented from reaching our heavenly goal, that eternal pasture. If we will peek ahead to verses 27 and 28, we will see quickly a preview that later in this chapter, when Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, he makes clear that those who belong to him are guaranteed the security of eternal life. Look at 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. See, well, while these bodies that we've been given, these bodies will perish. Our souls will never perish because we are the sheep of his pasture. Which brings us to the second point. And it concerns what is meant by Jesus' reference to pasture. He said, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
Well, from an agricultural perspective, the reference to pasture, that's obvious. The shepherd leads his flock to a grassy field for those sheep to stand there and graze. Now, for a sheep, we will assume, boy, that's a place of great contentment. Just hang out and eat all day. But while we are metaphorically referred to as the sheep of Christ's flock, it goes without saying, we are not woolly, grass-eating sheep, are we? Therefore, when Jesus speaks of believers finding pasture, that's obvious it's got a whole symbolic meaning, right? And this meaning is not difficult to discern because Jesus has already given us the lens that we need to look through as we examine this word pasture. When Jesus told us that he is the door and that all who go through him will be saved, we will conclude that the pasture to which he leads us is the eternal kingdom of God. The Bible tells us that for those who believe, there is eternal life in God's kingdom. Now, this eternal life is quite remarkable, really, because it is something that awaits us, this eternal life. But the Bible tells us that this eternal life for the believer is something we have right now. Earlier in this gospel, at John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said this to us, He who hears my word and believes has everlasting life. See, that's a present possession verb. Has eternal life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. That tells us that eternal life is a present possession for those who believe. While the grassy pasture means contentment for the actual sheep, that has no appeal to us, hanging out and eating grass, right? But I think we will agree. There is no greater source of contentment than knowing that eternal life has been guaranteed for us. In fact, we already have it. It has been given to us. The contentment of knowing that, as Jesus says, we have already passed over from death to life, that is contentment. After speaking of saving all who enter through him and thus finding pasture, Jesus concludes his I am statement with a, another comparison. Let's look, please, at verse 10. Jesus says, the thief that does not come, I'm sorry, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. In this comparison, a contrast is made between those who come to the sheep with two diametrically opposed goals. And these two goals could not be any more different. You see, one comes to bring death, while Jesus comes to bring life. Can you get any more different than that? No. In the first part of this comparison, Jesus returns to the image of the thief, which was introduced in the opening illustration. 
the thief, Jesus said, rather than using the door, attempts to climb over the wall. And the ultimate goal of this unauthorized entry is pure evil. Pure evil. Jesus says the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. Notice the word except. The thief does not come except. That is the same thing as saying that the thief comes for only one reason. And what is that reason? To bring death to the sheep. Jesus says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We would expect the first two terms, to steal and to kill. We would expect the thief to steal a sheep in order to kill it for food. But what is unexpected is the word destroy. That is an extreme word, and it seems unnecessary after you just spoke about killing the sheep. You need to add destroy it too? Unless the word destroy is meant to suggest a killing not for food, but merely for the sake of killing. In other words, this may point to a situation where some have come to the sheep for the purely evil and demonic pleasure of destroying whatever lives. Satan is a destroyer. We are reminded of an earlier confrontation that Jesus had with the religious leaders. He said to them, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. You see, the the false shepherds of this world, both then and now, who preach something other than the gospel, they're not so much interested in killing the body as in destroying the soul. After Jesus reveals the evil goal of these thieving false shepherds, whose goal is to destroy, Jesus now speaks about why he has come. In the second part of verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Some translations have has and have it to the full. I'm concerned that some Christians have a mistaken understanding of this verse. Many preachers, typically the prosperity preacher types, they have mishandled this verse. This kind of preacher, the prosperity preacher, loves to talk about the abundant life. And to the prosperity preacher, the abundant life means a life that is abundant with things. Now, there is a sense that the genuine Christian does have an abundant life. We have an abundant life in terms of it being rich and full as we serve God because our life is abundant because our lives have meaning. Our lives have purpose. We want to serve God who created us and gave us eternal life. But if we have a more exact, more precise look at what Jesus says here, he does not speak about an abundant life, meaning the acquisition of things. What he does speak about is giving us life 
and that we might have this life abundantly. You see, he's talking about the abundance of life, not the abundance of things. Again, what does Jesus say? I have come that they may have life and that they may have it, this life, more abundantly. I submit that as Jesus describes the life that he brings as abundant, he's not only speaking about the measure of life, and what is the measure of life if it's abundant? It's eternal life. You can't get more abundant than that. But he's also speaking about a new and different kind of life, a life that is abundant. And I submit the abundant life is a life of contentment. Well, why is the believer content? Well, we are content because our shepherd is the good shepherd who has promised to lead us, to guide us, and to make certain we reach our heavenly pasture. Nothing will prevent us from doing so. I suggest it is the security and comfort of knowing we belong to Christ. We are the sheep of his pasture. And there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. As we are given this promise of eternal life and having it abundantly and to the full, we are reminded once more of the 23rd Psalm, which in its concluding verse says this, You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Abundance, right? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? Forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table to celebrate our communion with you. We thank you that you are the door. It is through you that all who believe find salvation and the security and comfort of eternal life. While so much fails in this world around us, we are content in knowing that you will never fail us. Amen.